This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. I'm Alan Garber. I'm the director of the Center for Primary Care and Outcomes Research and the Center for Health Policy here at Stanford. And um, we're very proud and happy to be part of FSI. And I feel like um, I'm part of a chain of presentations telling you more and more things that you need to be worried about, and there are things you are all already worried about, but you probably are worried in ways you never imagined to be possible. Um, I'm hoping that you'll get some light stuff in this session, but uh, we're, we're dealing with a very serious business. Uh, the topic of this session that you see in the program is pandemics, infectious diseases, and bioterrorism. Uh, so this is not comic material by and large, uh, and it, it's uh, an area in which there's a lot to be concerned about and a lot to be done. And uh, the three people that are here on the panel are uh, the all-star team uh, in this subject area. In fact, you couldn't ask for uh, anyone better. Mike Osterholm, Osterholm who I'll be uh, introducing again it will, during before his uh, keynote speech at lunch, is... Um, probably the most prominent person working on issues of biodefense, bioterrorism, and preparedness for uh, infectious disease outbreaks. He, he was at the Minnesota Department of Health for nearly a quarter of a century and uh, had, had pioneered many innovative uh, projects and initiatives there uh, and then um, became very deeply involved at the national level. He's been an uh, advisor in so many roles that I can't begin to mention them at the national level to both uh, Secretary Thompson of HHS and now Secretary Levitt of HHS. And his counsel is sought everywhere on these issues. And today he'll be speaking about um, why a bioterrorist event is not the same as an, the new outbreak of an emerging infection or of an existing uh, well-known infectious agent. Uh, the second speaker this morning will be Douglas Owens, who is uh, a colleague of mine here in CHP. He is uh, a practicing physician, a general internist, who has written widely about issues of detection of infectious diseases, particularly HIV disease, and the response to uh, preparation for and response to a bioterror outbreak. He's written quite a bit about anthrax, and he will be speaking today about what may sound like a technical issue, but one with enormous practical consequences, syndromic surveillance. In other words, how do you detect an outbreak early? And then uh, the third speaker is Larry Wine, who is a, a very distinguished, um, well, he's a guy who cuts across so many areas it's hard to describe. He, you could say he's an applied mathematician, but it wouldn't quite do him justice. He's the Paul Holden Professor of management science at the Graduate School of Business. He has a PhD in operations research from Stanford. And uh, <clears throat> while he writes articles in the leading professional journals, in, in highly technical journals, highly technical articles on a wide variety of topics, he's increasingly focused on health issues and simultaneously publishing his work in places like the New York Times. Uh, sometimes he's gotten in more trouble from publishing in academic journals like the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Some of you may know that the, uh, in a celebrated case, there was an attempt to suppress publication of his work, which described how vulnerable our uh, supply of milk is to um, contamination, uh, potentially deliberate contamination as part of a bioterrorist event. 
So uh, Larry will be speaking about the uh, <clears throat> ways that we might prepare for a major outbreak of influenza, uh, a major epidemic, or a pandemic. I've asked each speaker to limit their comments so we'll have plenty of time for questions and discussion. So uh, each one of these people has, is a real treasure trove of knowledge about these topics, and um, they're going to have to hold back quite a bit uh, in their uh, opening comments, but I hope that you'll be able to, to get your questions answered during the discussion period. So please join me in welcoming this very distinguished panel. <laughs> and we'll start with Mike. Thank you very much, Alan, for the kind introduction to my fellow panel members and to many distinguished guests here in the audience. Uh, I must tell you that, so with all due respect, I wish our panel wasn't meeting right now. I would have liked to extend it this morning on for about another two days. Uh, the earlier sessions were remarkable uh, in what they covered. Um, let me just lay out a framework for the discussion today that is one that uh, is in the concept of risk, uh, something that we heard a lot about this morning in terms of trying to understand it. Uh, first of all, the premise that we almost start with is that uh, all of us are going to die. None of us are going to get out of this world alive, depending on your religious beliefs, uh, et cetera. We're all going to die. There will always be a top ten causes of death. So if we replace the current top ten, we'll have ten new ones, and I'm not sure the ten new ones would be any better than some of the ten we have now. But I think we can all agree that we'd like to live long, productive lives. And one of the key factors in interrupting that goal is infectious diseases. And so from the standpoint of those of us in this area, you know, we're not trying to beat death per se. What we're trying to do is make sure that you have an opportunity to do something very late in life after you've had a very long and fruitful life. <coughs> now, if you understand infectious diseases, you most often understand them from headlines because today infectious diseases tend to be those things that you hear very little about until there's an outbreak or an epidemic or the concern about a pandemic or something like that. And in fact today, throughout the world, infectious diseases play a very important role in deciding who lives and dies, particularly in the developing world countries. And one of the areas that today we won't talk much about yet is a risk from the standpoint of looking at the overall quote-unquote health safety of the world is clearly infectious diseases. One of the areas that is being addressed adjacent to us in another room is the issue of the environment. Today, the availability of safe water and the ever-increasing risk of, of infant uh, deaths due to diarrheal disease is increasing dramatically in many areas of the world as we stretch the water supplies beyond anything any of us could imagine. Uh, that kind of situation doesn't get a lot of attention. Yet on the other hand, we know if you look at data from a number of different studies, the relationship between the explosion in the world population and actual infant mortality is actually tied intricately together. Uh, if you look at maternal, uh, 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 the rates of death in children and you look at fertility rates, you can actually show that where you have very high infant mortality, you also have very high fertility rates. And as you improve the basic safety of a community from their water supply, their food supply, the empowerment of women and education, you find that actually birth rates drop dramatically. Even in our own country over the last 100 years, you can show cities that have clearly had uh, what would today be considered developing world country birth rates that are now almost at not even reproduction just because of the changes in basic health. From my perspective, that's probably one of the most understated, most important issues around infectious diseases that we need to think about. But we're not here to talk about that today. We're obviously here to talk about the Big Bang Theory ones, the kinds of issues of uh, what you'd call the big hit. And I, from my, moving from that perspective today, what I'd have to say is, is that many of the diseases that really are playing significant impact in our communities in the developed world 
are ones that we hear very little about. Today we see a very rapidly escalating problem with antibiotic resistance. Uh, the short-lived benefit we've had from the use of anti-infectives for the last two generations and the fact that the microbial genetics is far outstripping our ability from a wise person production uh, capability to actually create new antibiotics. And uh, this is an area that is going to have long-term impact on us, not the acute right now impact. But I guarantee you that if we don't have some major new thinking and changes in therapeutics for infectious diseases, over the next 20 years, we're going to see a very different, almost pre-World War II-like picture for many of our infectious disease issues that we see emerging. And that's one of the areas we deal with a lot. That then brings us to those diseases that are the calamity-type diseases, the ones that really get the headlines. Uh, SARS was a good example of a disease that the world was new. It was unclear what it would do. Clearly, there were, uh, it was at first, because of the unknown, a significant concern. But I can tell you that within the first three to four weeks of SARS in the developed world, we had a pretty good handle on the agent. We knew how it was being transmitted. We know what to, what to do about it. But it still was scary. It was hoary, so it made lots of news. Um, the 8,000 cases, 800 deaths clearly were an important issue, but they were ones that public health really brought under control quite quickly by just standard infection control procedures and understanding how it was transmitted. Now, it didn't hurt that a disease like that actually, while transmitted via the respiratory route, was also a disease that where you were not really very infectious until the fifth or sixth day of your illness and most infectious when you were having certain procedures done on you in the hospital where you were actually doing respiratory related procedures. So we could do a lot about that. Where we're really concerned today, I think, in terms of what could be the really significant events, they come down to two. And this is the point of, that Alan asked me to address. And that is the idea of what I consider to be the disease that is the Lion King of infectious diseases, and that is influenza. I'll be talking about that more at the luncheon. Um, while HIV-AIDS is clearly a very significant uh, factor in the world today, tuberculosis, the vector-borne diseases, all are having big impact. In the end, influenza has dating back to history. And in fact, if you were to add up all the deaths due to smallpox and plague and compare them to the history of influenza, influenza wins hands down over all of those diseases over history. And the fact that influenza has really two faces. There is the seasonal flu situation that we deal with every year. And then there is that which we call pandemic influenza, which is that intermittent once every so many year kind of event. And I'll talk more about risk than that at the noon hour, uh, trying to put it in the context of this morning's presentations, that have been known to be very catastrophic, mildly catastrophic, or sometimes a bad yawn. And we never know when that new flu virus comes around which of those three it's going to be. But we know it will come back around. Now, Preparing for that and preparing for general infectious diseases is one where you can count on it happening. Therefore, you know that you're going to have to prepare. You know that you're going to need certain services. You know that you're going to use certain vaccines or certain kinds of drugs. And yet today, even in the world of infectious diseases, we're using 1950s technology for our influenza vaccine. Um, we have a very limited ability to provide new antiviral drugs, et cetera, for this, and really reflects today what I call the market push of infectious diseases, which is getting thinner and thinner and thinner. When you know that one lifestyle drug like Viagra can actually outstrip <laughs> in annual revenues all the other anti-infectives drugs sold in the world, you understand if I'm in a pharmaceutical industry business, I know where my bread is buttered and therefore where will I tend to go. And we're having a major problem with that issue. That then gets us to the final category of diseases, and that's bioterrorism. Um, bioterrorism is a very sad reality of a modern world. 
Uh, I believe that unlike the anthrax situation, which we call it, which still demonstrated with only a very limited number of cases, a very limited hit, what it could do to the social, political, and economic climate of the world. Grant you, you may argue that that was insult upon serious insult. If that hadn't followed 9-11, would it have been severe, as severe? I still think people's ancestral buttons get pushed when you have something like that, and 20-some cases of a disease of anthrax still would have caused a significant problem. So from a public health perspective, we know that we have a real potential future. Uh, one of the other roles that I serve on, I was appointed uh, a year and a half ago to the newly uh, constituted National Science Advisory Board on Biosecurity, which is actually a group assessing the issue of the potential to use good science for bad purposes and how easy that is. And I think uh, Editor Kennedy would tell you that that's where, in fact, the paper that Larry did was referred to uh, early on for some discussions, as was uh, the 1918 paper in terms of, of uh, what we were the re bringing back the 1918 virus is, should we be doing this research? How should we be doing this research? And uh, we can just tell you that today, what it took 25 or 30 years ago that could only be done in a government-sponsored research laboratory with a tremendous amount of government support today can be done in many university laboratories with a minimal of, in, of resources available just because of the increase in technology. Now having said that, today we tend to focus on terrorism and bioterrorism at least as a government-sponsored problem, uh, pro, uh, problem yet. We often talk about that. I have for at least a decade worried more about the Ted Kaczynski model. Ted Kaczynski was nuts but he made a hell of a bomb. Today, we worry desperately that someone is just going to try to use a biologic agent and therefore see if they could do it. And unfortunately, there is real power in these agents when disseminated in the correct way with the right agent. And while there have been many false alarms in the past, I must tell you that those false alarms have also provided roadmaps for others to use it. So whether Iraq had at any time had biologic agents, I can't tell you. Uh, does other countries possess them? They might. But again, I come back to the fact that it's the lone offender, it's the, the, the divided terrorist group that I think still provides a real risk. Now, from a preparation standpoint, this is very different. It's different because you never can know if it's going to happen. But if it happens, it will happen big. The other piece of it is that you can at least count on it's not likely to happen in a widespread area, meaning that if you look at a pandemic of influenza as I'll talk about today, that is going to hit the world simultaneously. Every town, every county, Every, every state, every country is going to be in the soup about the same time. That poses very different challenges, I must admit, than a terrorism event, where if New York City is peppered today with anthrax spores in the subway or in some kind of, of a uh, uh, air, aerosol release, uh, we can bring the resources of many locations, many places to bear. Now, grant you, they could do many different hits at the same time. You could have what uh, Richard Danzig has characterized as the reload factor. You can do it again tomorrow and the next day and the next day, so you'd have a repetitive nature, which will add to the problems. But on a whole, to provide for that kind of a calculated comprehensive attack, we believe, would actually be something that's stretching out there from that risk perspective. And I thought this morning's presentation on understanding risk is a good one in that regard. So on the, what we need to do, though, is prepare for it. And, and to prepare for it means we have to have vaccines we may never use, post-exposure vaccines. We have to set into place monitoring systems like the BioWatch program for 30-some cities in this country that may never get a positive hit. And how do you support those over time? It's very different supporting programs for any of the other infectious diseases where they're in your face every day. Or with bioterrorism, they're never in your face till they happen, and then they run you over. 
So then I think Larry will probably talk more to that effect or the issues of the difference in bioterrorism. So I think to set the stage today, all of the infectious diseases pose risk. The issue should be how do we minimize morbidity and mortality, particularly in those in throughout the world at the earliest years through their productive years of life. Secondly, how do we deal with the emerging problems that have no, what I would call, financial investment from private sector, and it's hard in a public sector world to get that kind of support today. And then third, last but not least, is how do you deal with the disease that never happens until it does happen, and then when it happens, it's a big one, or at least has that potential, and how do you provide support for that? So I think that hopefully lays out a framework for our discussion today and uh, how we and where we see our investments. Thank you, Mike. Uh, we'll hold questions uh, until the discussion period at the end, unless somebody has a very specific question about a factual point. Okay, thank you. Uh, Doug, oh, you're. You might want to start talking as it's gone on hibernate. Not obesity, yeah. It's not going to be obesity today. <laughs> Great. Thanks very much, Alan. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. Mike talked about um, uh, sort of preparations for bioterrorism and, and pandemic uh, influenza naturally occurring agents and, and um, how they may be very different and, and the difficulty of, of preparing for something that might never come. And what I want to talk about today is one of the issues about preparing for bioterrorism, and that is how you detect a, a bioterrorism agent uh, release or an event once it happened. And I'm going to talk about syndromic surveillance, which is what many people are relying on today as one of potentially our main lines of defense in terms of understanding when something, when an event has occurred. And I'm going to talk about how you might evaluate some of the systems that are, that are out there and what, is a, what does an evaluation tell us about um, are, are these systems likely to help us? And what are the issues that we need to be concerned about? Um, because, uh, because some of these surveillance systems may be, in some respects, our first line of defense. The work I'm going to tell you about was research was done primarily by David Buckridge and some colleagues. David was a PhD student here, he's a physician. I'm now going back to Canada. Paul Switzer, John Frank, and Mark Mewson um, were other collaborators. I want to start by showing you this graph. This graph shows on the y-axis um, the mortality from an anthrax attack from zero to 100%. The x-axis here is how quickly you get antibiotics after you develop symptoms from anthrax. And this graph was developed by a fellow that we had here in critical care and pulmonary medicine, John Eric Holte, who reviewed every published case of anthrax that's been published in the last 100 years. And I want to focus on the time course and mortality. Let's suppose that you get antibiotics two days after you develop symptoms. The mortality that you would observe is about 20%. But if instead you don't get antibiotics until six days after you develop symptoms, the mortality is about 90%. And that's the reason that people are very, very concerned about the timeliness of a response in, in detecting an event very early on because time makes a great deal of difference. 
So early detection of bioterrorism is critical, and how are people trying to do that? And the way they're trying to do it is in part with something called syndromic surveillance, and let me just define that. So syndromic surveillance tracks syndromes as opposed to diseases. Syndromes like a flu-like illness, nausea and vomiting, fever and rash, etc. I'll contrast that with traditional surveillance, which depends on making a diagnosis of a disease. So for syndromic surveillance, you're really looking at constellations of symptoms. And the idea is that you might see constellations of symptoms earlier in the course of disease, and it might give you a, a, a quicker heads up that something's going on. So here's the assumption that surveillance of syndromes can detect disease outbreaks rapidly. And if you look along this axis here, this is disease progression. Let's say this is anthrax. You have some incubation period, then a prodromal state, then a very serious illness, and then recovery or death. And you, what you see is that uh, as people begin to get sick, they start doing things like not showing up at work or not showing up at school, and you might monitor that. They start taking medications, so you might look at things that people buy in the drugstore. Then they begin to be, interact with the healthcare system, and they might be going to clinics or ERs. And at that point, you can, you can sur do surveillance for syndromes and then finally diagnosis and treatment. And so the hope here is by looking at syndromes, you get an earlier detection signal uh, for an event. Syndromic surveillance is happening all over the United States. There's a, a tremendous amount of work going on this, a tremendous amount of money being spent. There are very few evaluations of these systems that are uh, complete evaluations, I would say. As of 2003, there were really four published evaluations of three systems. Uh, we're now spending probably hundreds of millions of dollars on this. So how should you evaluate these systems? How would you think about this problem? Well, first, you want to know, will they detect an outbreak, of course, and what's the likelihood that they would detect an outbreak? Secondly, you'd want to know, will they detect it faster than traditional surveillance mechanisms? That's the whole thesis behind this syndromic surveillance. But the problem is it's really not possible to perform empiric evaluations because we don't have outbreaks of bioterrorist events to evaluate these systems against. And so the approach that you can use is simulation modeling, and what I'm going to tell you about is some work done by David Buckridge and his colleagues here to do that. So this is a simulation-based comparison of syndromic surveillance and traditional surveillance. We're going to try to figure out does syndromic surveillance really give you this advantage in terms of time and will it work? David used a dispersion model for an anthrax release and a model of anthrax disease progression, and then a model of healthcare utilization, because these system, the system we're going to talk about today looks at administrative codes that are generated when somebody comes in for a visit. And the code will be something for something like a respiratory illness. And so you can track these codes that are generated in real time to try to look for the syndrome of respiratory disease. And that's what this project did. <clears throat> He generates outbreak data from a simulated outbreak and then superimposed it on real administrative data that I'll tell you about in a minute from a, a three-year period. And then compared whether you detect the outbreak earlier by syndromic surveillance or by traditional surveillance. This is the area that it was done for. It's Norfolk, Virginia area. Um, the reason he used this is he, he was able to get data from about 400,000 covered lies, almost uh, 2.3 uh, million visits. This shows the zip codes where people live who are in this system. This is a TRICARE healthcare system. It was really active duty military and their families. And so this shows the area for which this administrative data was, was being generated and, and, um, in a, in a real-time way. 
This is the dispersion model, and, and he looked at a variety of different kinds of anthrax releases. This is for a one kilogram release from a point source at Langley Air Force Base. You see the atmospheric conditions down here on the bottom, a two, middle, two millimeter release height, 10 seconds duration, wind from the north northwest. And here you see the plume of anthrax that is, that is released from this, uh, from this point source. And if you look at the scale here, you recognize that this plume is almost 30 kilometers long. So that's an, an, it's really a, a very broad area. Who gets infected? This shows zip codes of people who get infected, and this shows the probability that you get infected. And so what you see is over this very large area of a number of zip codes, very high probabilities that people become infected with anthrax after a release like this. So now the question is, if you had syndromic surveillance in place in this area, which is in place, um, might it work? These are the main results that I want to show you. This graphs look a little complicated, but I'm going to walk you through them. Along the y-axis here is the proportion of the outbreaks that get detected by syndromic surveillance first. And so what he did is simulate a thousand releases like the one that I showed you. And then for each of those thousand releases, he, he estimates whether it gets detected first by syndromic surveillance or first by traditional surveillance where if somebody goes in, they get blood cultures, et cetera, and a diagnosis of anthrax is made. Along the top, on the x-axis up here, are the number of false alarms per month. So there's an inevitable trade-off between how many false alarms you have and how sensitive the system is. The more sensitive it is and the more likely it is to detect things, the more false alarms you get. So if you were willing to tolerate a false alarm rate of about one per month, what you see is that the syndromic surveillance system detects only about 30 to 40 percent of the, of the uh, outbreaks before traditional surveillance. So only really uh, less than half. Then you look over here, and if you, again, at this notion of one false alarm per month, what you find is this is the, this, this, the y-axis here gives you the detection benefit, which is how much sooner it's detected by syndromic surveillance and traditional surveillance. And at a false alarm rate of about one, what you find is you get about a half a day or maybe 12 hours or so. Okay, so two big lessons here. One, a lot of the outbreaks weren't detected at all by syndromic surveillance. When they were detected by syndromic surveillance, the time advantage you get is a half a day to maybe a day, depending on how many false alarms you want to tolerate. And if you're able to tolerate a lot more false alarms, say three, month, then you detect more, and you also get a slightly bigger advantage in terms of how soon you detect them, okay? So w the degree of false alarms you'd be willing to, willing to tolerate, of course, depends on what you have to do about each of those false alarms. So just to summarize that, at three false alarms per month, syndromic surveillance detected about 40 to 60 percent, and the mean detection benefit was 1 to 1.2 days. One day might be significant, of course. If we recall back to that graph that I showed you, that might be a significant change in mortality. At a lower false alarm rate, though, where it's not quite so many false alarms per month, you're only detecting 6 to 38 percent of the time, and you're only getting a few hours edge on traditional surveillance uh, methods. So will this work? So far, even though hundreds of millions of dollars are being spent on this and it's being done all over the United States, the, the evaluations that have been done of syndromic surveillance have been relatively limited. And David's work is the only one I know where it was compared to other methods that we might use to try to find, de de detect these outbreaks. If the system's sensitive enough to detect many outbreaks, most of the outbreaks, then there are going to be many false alarms. 
And so that, of course, creates tremendous problems for the public health folks. The detection benefit in terms of how much sooner you detect it might be mo quite modest, might be a half a day to a day. And so if, you, if you're going to turn that into a change in mortality, you'd have to act very, very rapidly on these uh, syndromic surveillance systems. They may be more useful for other diseases. This was only done for anthrax. And they might be useful, syndromic surveillance might be useful for monitoring how the spread of an epidemic, et cetera. So there may be other reasons to do it. But it's very clear that we need further evaluation if we're going to count on these to be our first line of defense against bioterrorism. And I think this shows you as some of the difficulty, and, and Mike points out, you have to do this for years and years, and you may never have, and you hope you never will have, a real, a real event to detect. But you have to evaluate these things to understand how well they might work, and you have to s be able to sustain the funding, et cetera, to keep them going over long periods of time. Thank you. Thank you, Doug. Larry? <coughs> Good morning. Uh, Alan asked me to uh, describe my recent research on pandemic flu. This is based on a 95-page paper, uh, and it was, was kind of superficially uh, summarized in an op-ed in the New York Times on October 25th. And in the 12 minutes that I have, the uh, cut I'll take will be closer to the 1,000-word op-ed than the 95-page paper. Uh, I co-authored the uh, first mathematical studies of what's viewed as the three main bio catastrophic bioterror uh, scenarios, namely smallpox, anthrax, and botulinum toxin. All three were published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. And I just want to, despite that, I want to reiterate what Mike said earlier, is that I think uh, the likelihood of a pandemic flu is much higher over you know the coming years than any of these other three attacks and if any of these were to occur the impact of a pandemic flu if it looks anything like 1918 would dwarf uh, the impact of the bioterror event so uh, this is a, a serious issue that Mike will be talking about at, at lunchtime uh, this is work uh, that was uh, suggested to me by Richard Danzig, who was Secretary of the Navy under the Clinton administration. It's joint with Mike Atkinson, who's a PhD student in, here at Stanford in the Institute for Computational and Mathematical Engineering. So the basic setup is in the first, so I'm thinking about a 1918 type pandemic. In the first wave, we will not have a vaccine. We won't have enough antivirals for widespread prophylactic use. The hospitals will be totally overwhelmed, so most of the care will be happening at home, not at the hospitals. And the policy question that I'm trying to address is, what can we do around the house with non-pharmaceutical interventions, because we will have nothing pharmaceutical, so in terms of infection control, things like facial protection or washing your hands or something like that. Uh, what can we do around the house to both protect ourselves and then collectively to uh, greatly mitigate or possibly even control a pandemic. So uh, that's the policy question, and I quickly realized the only way to make any serious progress on this is to answer or at least to address the much more fundamental scientific question, which is how is influenza transmitted from person to person? So there's three ways that uh, infectious disease can be transmitted. So the first one is called aerosol transmission. So I could cough or sneeze in the air, 
and the particles will stay in the air and then you could come by and inhale them later and then get sick. Second way is contact transmission. And this would be where I put my fingers in my eyes or nose or mouth, shake hands with Doug. Doug puts his hand in his eyes or nose or mouth and I have now transmitted the uh, disease to Doug, although Doug never does those things. Uh, and then the third one is droplet transmission where I would turn directly to Doug and sneeze or cough right in his face. So it just went directly into his uh, mouth or eyes or nose. I don't, do I don't usually, yeah, right. my kids occasionally, but I don't do it too much. Now, remarkably, given the damage that influenza has caused, this qu the answer to this question is unknown. If you read the White House pandemic flu plan, it says we do not know the roots of transmission. And as a result, from an educational point of view, they're, they're really being quite vague about what individuals should do both at home and at work. And in some ways, the things that are easy, like hand washing, they'll push enthusiastically because it doesn't cost them anything. And other things that are more difficult, say facial protection, they won't say much about because uh, once they get in there, they realize, well, they'd, they'd have to put in a lot of effort to make that happen. So, you know, in 12 minutes, I can't really describe, well, let me just try to describe uh, a little bit what I did. So I built a mathematical model really from the ground up. So I'm looking at the details of how much virus comes out when you sneeze and cough. What is the probability distribution of the size of the particles? And then given the size of the particles, how quickly are they falling to the ground? And then given the size of the particles, if you inhale them, where are they going in your body? And then lots of other details too. And in the end, we have mathematical expressions for each of the three possible modes of transmission. Now, some of the characteristics of influenza we know fairly well. Other ones, especially the ones related to behavior, like how often I sneeze or cough directly in Doug's face, we really don't know very well. Now, the mathematical model I developed holds not just for inf influenza, it would hold for any uh, disease like this, and in particular it holds for rhinovirus, which is the virus that causes the common cold. Turns out there's a lot more data about rhinovirus than there is about influenza, because about 20 years ago, there were two groups who did uh, controlled experiments with humans on this. So what we did was to go back, to fit the model twice, once with rhinovirus and use the wealth of data that's out there. Then we did it once with influenza, with the existing influenza data that's out there. And because of the way we get the mathematics uh, to work out, we can ignore uh, some of the hard to measure characteristics like the behavioral aspects and we can focus on characteristics that we understand about flu and about rhinovirus and we're able to essentially make inferences about influenza from the differences between flu and rhinovirus and from the wealth of data we have on rhinovirus. And the punchline of the study is that the model and analysis and data predict that the great bulk of the transmission is due to aerosol transmission. Again, this is the one where the stuff would just stay in the air and then you would inhale it. This is bad news. 
because it's a lot easier, in a sense, to control some of the other things than it is to control aerosol transmission. Now, I can't come up here and tell you I know 100% that this is aerosol transmission. In particular, we really don't know much about the next pandemic. And if you look at the details of the last one, you know, the, the main thing we know is that we don't know. It's not going to look like 1918. It's not going to look like 1957 or 68. Uh, that said, there's not going to be any better data that's going to come along between now and the next pandemic. I mean, people are doing some ferret and guinea pig experiments, but these aren't nearly as persuasive, to, at least in my opinion, as looking at all the human data we have on rhinovirus and all the basic characteristics we know about flu and uh, rhinovirus. So I think we have to operate under the assumption that the bulk of transmission in a pandemic flu would be aerosol. So now the second part of our study is really much easier now that we've figured out it's mostly aerosol is to, is to assess various non-pharmaceutical interventions. So surprise, surprise, hand washing is not going to help. Uh, what does help uh, only on the margin are, is ventilation, that is open your windows, put on a fan, and using humidifiers because the virus survives less long uh, under high humidity. One thing that will help, although it won't be good for our marriages, is to have everyone sleep in separate bedrooms. Turns out the, the um, at least in our model, we predict that the aerosol transmission is really a near-term thing. So it's happening within a room and probably a small room, you know, possibly somewhat smaller than this. And it's not kind of a long-range thing we might see in tuberculosis or something like that. And that's probably why kind of our prediction is a little bit against the dogma of, um, you know, of influenza transmission. But the most important thing we can do, by far the biggest thing we can do, is face protection. So there's two uh, tools that we can use. One is called N95 respirators. The other one is called surgical masks. N95 respirators cost about a dollar. Surgical masks cost about a dime. Now, the effectiveness of these depend on three factors. Let me just walk through them briefly. First one is uh, how good is the filter that's inside these respirators or masks? How good are they at blocking out the virus so they don't get into your respiratory tract? Turns out the N95 respirators are quite good. So N95, just in case, N95 kind of thing you might see a construction worker wear, whereas surgical masks is when you, your dental hygienist working on you has a surgical mask on. Now, one of the more surprising things that came out of our analysis is that the filters inside the best surgical masks are actually very effective at protecting against influenza. It will keep out about 98% of the virus that is inhaled from getting into the target areas of the upper or lower respiratory tract. Now, I think some people in this field didn't realize that because these surgical mass filters don't work against submicron particles, but it turns out almost all the damage is done by particles that are bigger than three microns. And the amount of virus in particles grows as the cube of the diameter, and so there's just not very much virus in these very tiny uh, particles. So that's the first thing, efficacy of the filter. Both N95s and surgical masks have good filters. Second thing is the face fit. Now, if you've tried these on, N95s fit pretty close to your face, maybe 5 to 
uh, leakage coming through. Surgical masks are very loose, and it's more like 35 to 40 percent of leakage coming through. Turns out, if you wear pantyhose over the surgical mask, it will virtually eliminate the face seal leakage for either of these. And this was a study done out of Harvard in 1983. Uh, so it may look a little scary, you know, if it, but if you're stuck at home and there's a pandemic and the only thing you can get a hold of is surgical mask, then you can cut your pantyhose or your, your daughter or wife's pantyhose and uh, put it over your, your face. The third thing, which is probably the most important of these three, and I think one that people tend to forget, is compliance. I mean, are people actually going to wear these things? They may be perfectly good, but if they're hanging around, dangling around your neck 40% of the time, they're not going to be much help. And if you look at the data back in 1918, compliance uh, is, you know, in San Francisco is 90% uh, in the first weeks, and it quickly dropped to 10% thereafter. Surgical masks are a lot more, or let's say a lot less uncomfortable than N95s. So I went out and did my little plant tour. I went to our local hardware store, bought an N95, put it on. After about 10 minutes, I was like, get me out of this thing. And they're really tight and not comfortable. Uh, so that describes this. What has to be done, in my view, what has to be done is, well, I should say there's no, um, you know, I made this mistake of leaving out three words in the New York Times op-ed and the government called me on it. I said, there's no, government has no stockpile. I should have said government has no stockpile for the public. They have, you know, about 10% of what they predict they need for public health workers. They've stockpiled that. Uh, the government, and if you read the White House pandemic plan, they're being quite clear in this post-Katrina age. The federal government is not going to be here for us during the pandemic flu, so we need to get this ourselves. But still, what I'm pushing for is the federal government to first hire one of these whiz-bang companies. IDEO in Palo Alto would be a perfect example. Give them a month. They probably only need a week, but give them a month to come up with a surgical mask that is comfortable and has very little face seal leakage. And I'm sure there's ways to do this. In this day and age, there must have some adherence that you can put around uh, so this thing is not strapped to your head really tight and causing your blood flow to, to slow down. Uh, you know, pending the results of that design, then you decide what mix of respirators and masks that we're going to stockpile. And then we simply do the same thing we're doing with the vaccine companies and the antiviral companies is you sign very large contracts and you uh, stockpile enough for everyone in the country, which is a huge amount, uh, but again, we've already done it for things like smallpox vaccine, for anthrax vaccine, for others. There's no technological risk here. It's not like the pandemic, uh, you know, thing that we're not even sure if these antivirals are going to work or not. We know these masks uh, will work. It's not rocket science. We know how to make them very quickly. It's just a matter of having the extra capacity uh, to make them, and this is what should be done. And, and overall, I think the mindset and the government needs to change with regard to this issue of face protection for pandemic flu from that of a regulatory agency of protecting a worker who's going in on a daily basis in a voluntary manner in a dangerous environment to that of protecting all of our citizens who are going in to a dangerous situation of pandemic flu in an involuntary 
uh, manner. And I should say, I think the government is starting to come around. The fr I briefed them first in June. The uh, If you read the White House plans at that time, they don't really talk much about aerosol transmission or using N95 respirators. In October, an interim report came out for protection of healthcare workers. They are now acknowledging the possibility of near-term aerosol transmission and suggesting uh, N95s for the healthcare workers. And I suggest you all uh, go on the internet or your local Walmarts and get some uh, face protection. Thanks. Thank you, Larry. Let's have a hand for all three speakers. At this point, I'd like to open it up to uh, questions. And if I might take the prerogative of the chair, I'll start off with a question mainly for Mike, but I'd like all three of you to um, chime in. It's an issue that Mike brought up, which is are there adequate incentives for companies to develop the technologies that are needed? to uh, either prevent flu or to address it. Um, we have some industry people here who probably have some thoughts about that too. But um, uh, this is one of the infectious diseases are uh, unique among um, diseases in general in that there's an externality component. That is, uh, if you don't take precautions, uh, Larry, about covering up your mouth and so on, then I may get your, your bug. And if you don't treat it, I may be more likely to get the bug depending on what the treatment is and what the bug is. So uh, there, there's clearly a public interest here that, that markets can't fully address. But for something like uh, a vaccine or a, uh, an antiviral drug, I, I do have an incentive to, to use that, even if the, I don't have an adequate incentive. And I'm wondering, what is so different here um, that makes companies unwilling to invest in something like a vaccine or a drug to treat some of these infectious diseases? Uh, is it different from Mike has extensive public health experience, which is not limited to the, the areas we've discussed today? Is it different from other forms of preventive medicine? We, as an internist, I'm always concerned that my patients don't take adequate precautions and they don't, uh, they may not comply with what I recommend for their, the drug for their blood pressure, say, or lifestyle changes and so on and so forth. But is there something different here? And the corollary to that question is if the markets are failing for some reason, um, it's because people probably don't care enough about this, but if they don't care enough, how will the political system be able to address this question effectively? So, Mike, if you could yeah, start, yeah. I'd appreciate it. Well, thank you, Alan. Actually, uh, with all due respect, and as every good academician knows, I think you had three really good questions in that question. So let me, <laughs> let me try to dissect them apart. Uh, let me follow up a bit on, on your presentation just now on the mask respiratory protection issue. Actually, that's been an issue that we've been very involved with for quite some time. <coughs> and actually, I just served on an IOM committee on the reusability of uh, respiratory protection in terms of could you reuse respirators or masks and so forth with the issue of influenza. And what we really have here with the mass respirator issue, and frankly, as I'm going to talk about in my noon talk, it's really a fundamental issue of our economic system today. It's this just-in-time delivery system for which we don't consider any potential revenue base on something that will not get, may not get purchased in the future. Um, case in point is, is that the, all three of the major companies in the world that make respirators have put millions and millions of dollars into research to do just what you said, Larry. They do have designs, et cetera, that could work, that are more expensive, uh, and could readily bring them out in a moment's notice, in a sense. Uh, the problem with that is, is there's no market for it. And when I say there's no market for it, even the one-time buy market doesn't work in this kind of an economy. When the U.S. government contracts for a new airplane, 
and they have a contract with Northrop Grumman, whoever, and you get the $250 toilet seat, which everyone knows about, that's because when that airplane is contracted for, including the future availability of parts, it's all amortized to build that plant for 250 planes and then take the plant down. So every ounce of the upstart, the maintenance, and then the down of that plant is amortizing the cost of those planes. That's why they get very expensive. Today, we want to buy things at the cost it costs to produce them. So no company is going to invest in what might be a one-year or two-year one-time buy phenomena for a plant that has a life of 25 years because now they're sitting there with an empty plant for the next 23 years, and in the end, they actually lose money. And so the mask and respirator companies of the world haven't built much new capacity at all because they don't see not the one-year or the 18-month upside. They don't see the 20-year upside on that issue. And today, that is where it's at. And no responsible board of directors would tell them to go out, even if it's their quote-unquote civil duty or their public good duty to do that. And that's happened with a number of issues that we have in terms of surge capacity products today, which I'll talk more about. The issue of the vaccines is a very different issue. They, they fall somewhat into the area of antibiotics. But the issue of vaccines is, is that as a world population, we have consistently devalued vaccines, even in our own country. We try to, government-sponsored programs, try to get them on pennies for a dose. And that we have had a hard time understanding how a pharmaceutical industry should reap the kinds of similar profit margins they do for other drugs. And so today, when vaccines tend to be a public good, as you so described, and therefore bought by public, government organizations, we have this constant interface between that lower price, therefore not a payback at the same level. Even a drug company today, a pharmaceutical industry company that's making a certain amount of money on a vaccine, if it doesn't meet the same profit standards that other drugs meet, then you have to justify why the investment of resources and the risk to get to that vaccine is made when you have higher profit returns. And we see that time and time again. And we have not had any successful uh, resolution of that. And I must say, you know, one of the real heroes of the world has to be uh, Bill Gates and the Gates Foundation and the work that he, Warren Buffett, and even now President Clinton are doing. And even with all that re resource uh, availability, we're still not seeing this kind of long-term vision on the pharmaceutical industry. It's almost pay me to do something long-term, then I'll do it. But just giving me the product doesn't mean it'll get there. We're seeing the same thing with influenza vaccine. We have seen almost no real gain in influenza vaccine capacity over the last 12 months. Despite we have 35 different H5N1 vaccines in work right now, they all get to a certain level and they say, beyond that, we're not going any farther until you guarantee me that you're going to buy a whole lot of this down the road for the next 20 years. And without that kind of situation, we're doing. I'm making a prediction right now that if we don't have severe influenza in this country in the next six weeks, we will see a major downsizing of next year's influenza vaccine supply. Last year, the influenza vaccine in this country far outstripped our need. The industry threw away over 10 million doses that they had to basically eat last year. They tried to up it this year with the idea that we'd have more seasonal flu vaccination, but the public's fickle. In the absence of a influenza season, we think I think right now we could easily throw away 25 million doses of vaccine by March. And then the next year, I'll guarantee you the industry is going to bring it down in terms of what they can do. So I think that the vaccine, the final piece on the anti-infectives is a tough one. The anti-infectives is by far the single most complicated drug for an industry to actually not only develop, but then to conceptualize how they're going to gain profit. 
And what I mean by that is even if you take oncology drugs, all the other drugs, an antibiotic is a drug that you really need when you need it. But when you don't need it, don't take it because of the resistance issue. Try to use as little as you can. And make sure that only very few people get it, only if they really need it. And so what we all do is we create this major need, but then we say, but hardly use it. And so in a sense, there's not that, like you see with many of the other lifestyle drugs, again, coming back, the, the ongoing every day. Um, I mean, something as simple as, as oral contraceptives, uh, as hypertension drugs, you can go down the list. Those are drugs you will take for extended periods of time. Antibiotics, we want you to get your seven days and get it over with and don't ever do it again kind of thing. And so from a sales standpoint, if you look, anti-infectives play high risk today. And, and yet the return is there. The final piece of that is resistance. We are seeing a number of our anti-infectives that could have a lifetime even well beyond what patent life holds, but we're losing them because of resistance. So now you've got not only this issue of, you know, don't take it. Second thing is be careful because when you do, we're going to lose it over time anyways. We're losing many of our drugs, and the indications have become more and more complicated. So that's different than so many of the other issues we have today in terms of how do you get them there. In the end, it really does become a public good issue. How much are we going to pay? And if it's a public good issue, the public's not going to pay the kind of money that the private sector is going to want and demand for a reasonable return on investment and have the public say, oh, that's a great thing. We're very happy to pay $32 for a measles dose, a measles vaccine dose. They're not going to do that. So I, I have not seen any successful alternative to this over the past 15 to 20 years that we've been in this issue. And, uh, and more specifically, I don't see anything changing the first part I talked about with the mass respirators. That system across the board with surge capacity, anybody that builds surge capacity today would absolutely flunk out of, uh, the Stanford or Harvard MBA program within about uh, two minutes. Probably true. <clears throat> Any questions from the audience? Yes, over here. I'd like to ask, uh, what percentage of the pandemic flu uh, deaths are due to the viral illness itself? How many are due to secondary bacterial infection? Um, the answer is nobody knows, and the reason is because no two pandemics, as Larry pointed out, are alike. I'm going to talk about that. Right now, we know that the H5N1 virus in Asia uh, and specifically the 1918 virus that we saw uh, sweeping the world, actually killed in a very different mechanism than the seasonal flu and the pandemics of 1957 and 68, where a large percentage of those cases were secondary bacterial pneumonias. Um, these viruses actually elicit a very different kind of response. In part, it's due to the actual char growth characteristics of the virus. They grow in multiple organs in the body. They grow to very high titers or levels. And as such, they elicit this immune response in the host, which is what ultimately kills you. It's uh, called a cytokine storm. Basically, it results in a condition known as acute respiratory distress syndrome. And you basically kill yourself, in a sense. And today, we have just as hard a time dealing with people in intensive care units with severe acute respiratory distress syndrome as we had 50 years ago. And so if this is a 1918-like scenario, which, by the way, helps explain why most of the increase in deaths, and I'll show those data today, the rate of deaths was much higher in the 18 to 35-year-olds 
than it was in the young and the very old, which during seasonal flu, it's just the opposite. Or even in the 57 and 68 pandemics, it was the very young and the very old that died as secondary bacterial pneumonia. Uh, when the, in very short layman's terms, basically the more robust your immune system is, which 18 to 35 year olds have, you know, for the couple of you in the room over 35, they tell you on your way down. But the bottom line <laughs> message is, is that actually we can tie that in. We now have confirmed that that definitely is what's happened with H5N1. So the answer is whatever the, whatever the next pandemic strain is will dictate whether it's that U-shaped curve or the W-shaped mortality curve with the big increase in deaths in the otherwise young, healthy adult population. Alan, can I just add one thing on your first question because you wanted us to reply too. I agreed with everything Mike said. And because of all that, I think pandemic influenza in, in its unique way needs to be viewed as a national security issue, not not just kind of left up to market forces and we build factories to fight wars and to do other things and we could build factories and bite the bullet over the 20 year life of the factory or do something with creative with it afterward uh, and get it done yeah over here I have a question about the, the vaccines and how do you cope with the possible and in fact the indeed evolution of the virus itself if you make a batch of vaccine for instance and yeah. Well, I'm going to comment on that in my talk and just say that there's actually a WHO report that just came out 10 days ago that was very clear and said do not buy pre-pandemic vaccines because, in fact, we have such genetic diversity right now. You know, one of the problems we've had with seasonal flu, and this is always a tough thing to talk about because the fact that people misinterpret the statement to mean that influenza vaccines don't work, but sometimes they don't work. Uh, I'm aware of a study that is coming out soon that shows for the last two years in a very well-studied population, vaccine efficacy for seasonal flu vaccine was zero. And the reason was the fact is that the match between the circulating strain and the strain that was chosen for the vaccine some eight to nine months before didn't match up well. Now, if you have that much of a problem matching up strains on seasonal flu where the changes are much less, and now trying to pick a pre-pandemic vaccine that may ultimately be very, very, very different, I think you can see that that's real problematic. And the WHO just came out and said, don't buy them. So one of the problems we're having right now is we're basically having science by press release. And we have all these manufacturing pharmaceutical industry companies out there saying, we found this, we found this, we found this, and trying to convince countries to start stockpiling pre-pandemic vaccines. One, they have very limited capacity to do that. So that's not going to be a big problem because they can't make them anyway. Second of all, though, is the fact that they, I think, will be such mismatches. I think that right now, as much as we want to do something, as much as would make us feel good to do something, I think it's kind of like buying the fire truck without tires. Yes. I, I wonder about oh. the uh, issue of distribution and the challenges associated with that if we're either, particularly the biocarrier threat where we have no warning, but uh, basic challenges as revealed in the top off three exercise of people not having credentials to get past lines and, and so on and so forth. To what extent is the public health community addressing the mechanics of distribution rapid way to address uh, the timeliness issue? Well, Steve, you raise a huge challenge, <laughs> and I would acknowledge that that is the case. On the other hand, I would also tell you that it's doable and possible, and it's just how do you get local plans. Um, when I was at the uh, State Health Department in Minnesota, we put together what still is the single largest emergency vaccination program for meningitis outbreak in a community, 
And in two days, we've basically vaccinated 35,000 people with having had no plans four days before to have to even do it. And it was, grant you, one limited hit, but we had no plans in place. I mean, we were never anticipating this, and yet we pulled it off. So, I mean, it can be done. I think the issue is today that in many instances, it's trying to work with the current healthcare delivery systems, all the different government parties. And I think, as you've written about so clearly, it's not always a matter if you can do it. It's a matter to get everybody to agree how to do it. And if you have different parties who have different priorities, whether it's uh, first responder communities, law enforcement, public health, the healthcare delivery system, the emergency management staff. But I think a lot of that is getting worked out in many communities. Actually, I do think that more and more of this is being worked out. Do I think it will be perfect? No. I think there will be a lot of problems, but do I think it's a heck of a lot better than it was in 2001? Absolutely. And I think it's getting better. I would just say I don't have any concern about that with pandemic flu at all because there won't be any vaccine. So the bottom line is, is that anybody counting on that, uh, you know, by the time we get our first vaccine, if it's any time in the next four or five years, it's going to be six months into the pandemic. And by that time, a lot of people have either already gotten it and recovered, gotten it and died, and we'll actually be able to have them help a lot in terms of helping the few left to need the vaccine to get it. I think the one point is that the, dis the efficacy of the distribution really depends if you're giving it to everyone, handing it out like candy versus giving it to targeted populations, particularly if the targeting depends on sickness. So for example, there has been talk about antiviral prophylactic for influenza, and I just don't see this as being very feasible because you would need to go in and find someone who is sick, then you'd have to you know, get into the house and then hand, give it over to the people in the household. The amount of, not really worried well, but people who you know, want to pretend being sick, so they, you know, you're just inviting uh, chaos coupled with so few public health care workers are going to be out there going to work during a pandemic anyways. Also, another key issue is for pandemic flu, at least, um, well, I should say for seasonal flu because we have better data on that, almost all the viruses shed within plus or minus 18 to 24 hours of the, when you first show symptoms. And so basically you would need to get to someone extremely quickly after they showed symptoms, and it would be very hard to do. Uh, and while we've actually gone over, there's a, a little bit of time um, I, that you may be able to ask our panelists on the way to lunch. Um, but uh, I want to thank all of you for coming here today and especially thank our speakers for some very interesting presentations. <laughs>